Everyone, welcome to another awesome day with a struggle. I'm Sean Lee. I'm James Park. We're here to discuss the reality of daily struggles and how it's a constant no matter where we are on our journey. Join us for honest conversations as we navigate life, business, and career challenges. Learn how to accept the struggles and how it's all about the mindset. This episode, quite quickly deep dive into the idea of living in fear versus living in in the state of love. We talk a lot about how to identify and live without fear. Enjoy the episode. Welcome. We are going to talk about a book that Sean finished this last week. It's about how to live life through love and not fear. Yeah. The book's called A Course in Miracles, Made Easy. I guess A Course in Miracles, A-C-I-M, is a, it's a course. It's a pretty long series of books that was published, I think, quite a while ago. And it has a lot of foundations in, in roots in Christianity. And I remember one of my buddies, who's not religious at all, recommending the book to me. You know, he's one of my mentors, someone I respect greatly. And I started listening to it. And I just, I was like, I can't. There's <laughs> a lot of talk, you know, for someone who's spiritual but not religious. Oh, I'm talking about myself. You know, I'm pretty agnostic. It was just like a lot of talk about God. And I was just like, that's a weird book to recommend to me, <laughs> like knowing that n- neither of us are religious. The book is good, right? But it's just started out with a lot of talk about God, the ideas around Christianity. And as with, I think, most books actually that go deep on a subject like this, I tend to just put it down. And, and then a few weeks later, I'll, you know, because I bought it, I started listening. I have this, you know, completionist personality. It's like, I was like, I might as well, okay, I'll listen to some more of it. And it turned out to be really good and not very Christian y at all. Hmm. <laughs> it was actually very open minded. The author himself, he was, he was actually born a Jew, he's Jewish. And similarly, you know, he's, very spiritual and I don't think very religious in the traditional sense of religion. Or maybe he is religious, but not in the traditional sense of religion. And the core concept in the book is is very simple. It talks about how to live in love and not out of fear. And it's just that dichotomy. It's like you're either living in fear or you're living in love. It's quite simple. And after I finished the book, it like hit me one day that the meaning of enlightenment is simply someone who constantly chooses to live in the state of love and not in a state of fear. I bring this up because I've been struggling for a long time since I started meditating and reading all these books on spirituality, been struggling to grasp like what what does it mean to be enlightened, right? And not that I I am like desiring to be enlightened, you know, by any means, but it's more of a, a question I've always had like for these people who are considered enlightened, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, like people that are figureheads in spirituality, like, what does it mean for them? Every time I read one of their books or, you know, listen to their talks, it just sounds like there's so much complexity to enlightenment. And I've never been able to boil it down to just a very simple concept for me to at least grasp and practice on a day-to-day basis. Because there's like, you know, they throw words of compassion, there's like joy, and there's there's so many names and and it's always confused me a little bit because it's just like there's so many things to practice like how do they do it <laughs> you know there's so many things to consider and this book at least for me resonated well 
and breaking it down to just that that dichotomy. It's like you're either living in a state of love or you're living in a state of fear. And the buddy, my mentor, who recommended the book, is always actually before he even read this book, he's always told me, you know, make decisions out of love and not out of fear. And I got it and understood it, but it's not easy to practice by any means. And similarly, even me understanding like what does it mean to be enlightened to live in a state of love, it's not easy to practice by any means. But at least I had a I think I, I finally reinforced the simplicity of this concept is that and when I go about my day to day, when I'm pretty sure Thich Nhat Hanh or any of these people, I mean he's passed now, but when any of these people live and, and go on their day to day and they're faced with whatever comes to them, you know, in life, they will choose to not be in a state of fear. Because what I've been struggling with is what does it mean to be in a state of love, right? And at least in my daily practice the past two weeks, it's been easier for me to identify when I'm in fear and catching myself. I'll give you some examples. I've been meeting with some buddies lately, catching up, doing more like in-person meetings and, and stuff. And some people are like visiting now, you know, it's springtime. And, and, you know, I constantly hear about people moving to new jobs or doing new things, right? A buddy of mine, he's like going from banking to venture capital. Some other buddies of mine, they're like looking at investments and investing in like new businesses and then whatnots. And it got me thinking, I was like, wow, okay, maybe I should be doing some form of investing. And I think it brought me a lot of anxiety that like, I didn't feel like I was where I should be. Like I should be doing something else. I could be doing something else. I could be doing more with my life. And in that instance, I couldn't quite understand like how I would you know, live in a state of love in that situation. But I was able to very quickly catch myself in a state of fear. Yeah. And the fear was a multitude of things. One was that there's a fear that I'm not doing enough, that I'm not enough for the people around me, for my family. The fear that I'm going to be judged by other people, like I'm not doing enough. Fear of missing out, that there's like something that I could be doing out there that I'm not exploring, that I'm not doing missing out on opportunity, FOMO. In the moment I like had awareness of these fears, I was able to self-correct and catch myself effectively, be like, oh, those fears are um, kind of silly, <laughs> at least for my current state. Because my, I've already established for myself that like I, I want to spend this time, maximize this time with my kids and take time for myself and be in a state of learning and rebuilding of sorts. And just being aware that those things are great and exciting but is it for me right now? And I, I knew deep down the answer was like, no, this is not for me right now. If I want to be an, become an investor or, or a VC or an angel investor or whatnot, it's like, I can do that in 10 years. I can do that in five years or 10 years. I, I don't have to do it right now. And that, that calmed me down. So was it just the, just knowing that it doesn't have to be now? That was kind of the big thing that switched you from fear to love? I mean, I, I feel like that's one thing, saying like, oh, it's not now. That is removing a big part of the fear. I'm curious how you've come to, or maybe what the book says about living in love. What does that actually mean? How'd that change for you? How did that help? I'm be honest. I bookmarked a lot of things in the book, but I can't answer that. I, I don't remember. Hmm. It's one of these things when I'm reading these books that I, I sometimes wonder like how much value I'm getting out of it. And that's a fear in of itself. Like the fear again of like wasting time or like. I know I'm not getting what I should be getting out of spending the time. But I think the message is pretty much the same across the board, regardless of the religion, 
regardless of the practice. It's this idea that like you are enough as you are in this moment. And these high-level ideas are so simple, actually, at its core, but it's so hard to grasp on the day-to-day. And one of the things the book says, actually, is, you know, ACIM, the concept of it, this whole living in love, not out of fear. The book could be like just one page, you know? But the reason it's like voluminous or this even this made easy book, kind of like a, you know, four dummies version is as long as it is, is because as human beings, we need examples. And that's kind of, you know, I think why we we do this podcast that we kind of bring up examples from our own lives. But specifically from the book, one thing I distinctly remember now around that you are enough, a parallel to that, that the book mentions, and that's, it's a very deep concept in modern Christianity, at least my understanding of the most recent interpretations of it for the past couple hundred years, is the idea of original sin, of Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve came to this earth, expelled from the Garden of Eden because they sinned, right? Adam sinned. I don't think, even think Eve did anything bad. <laughs> you know, it wasn't even Adam's fault. It was a fucking snake, you know? But it's this idea of like original sin at its core. And ACIM, the entire course, is just like, there is no original sin. What does that stand for? A Course of Miracles. Okay. The book. The book and its courses are actually commonly referred to as ACIM. And its core concept that is that there is no original sin. And it's such a profound idea that even as a non-Christian, I mean, I, I went to church before, right, in my high school years and, and I you know, went to Bible study and whatnot. It's such a shocking thing to hear. Like, isn't that like the foundation of Christianity? <laughs> like, but it's not. It's an idea that was introduced, according to the book. Again, I'm not trying to like preach anything. I'm just sharing what the book is saying. The book is just saying that like, we're not born sinful. We're not born guilty. It's this idea that we're born so sinful and guilty that it actually starts every humanity like on a wrong footing. Imagine like if you were grew up told that like, you're great, you're innocent. You know, what kind of path would you lead, right? Versus like told, hey, you're guilty. Yeah, you didn't do anything, but you're guilty. You're just born guilty because some somebody like did something before you. Now you got to like get yourself out of that guilt, right? Now you got to like be like, I got to prove my innocence. Like what kind of state of being is that? You know, there's a couple other things that the book throws at me that I just like, I was like, holy shit, like, wow, that's like profound. Like I might actually become Christian if I, you know, like... They remove these aspects of it. The other aspect is the idea of hell. Hmm. He gave this example. Again, it's not him. It's the course. Like he's just simplifying it. You know, it's called Course of Miracles Made Easy. But he said, you know, hell is associated with, with this concept of judgment. The so course says that there is no hell. There is no thing as internal damnation. It is human created fear mongering. And the reason for that is that if God is all loving, forget God, they say. Think about you as a human being, and you had a son or a daughter, and they committed the most, I don't know what the hell they do. They, they do something really bad. Even they like committed murder. Would you stick their head in the oven and turn up to crank it up to, you know, a thousand degrees? Yes. <laughs> kidding. I wouldn't. No, would not. But it's like, most people wouldn't. So why would God do that? And that was, that was a question that was proposed. Like, why would God do that to his, like, if he's all loving, him or her, you know, they, if they're all loving, why would they do that to their children that they love, right? If we were created in his image and he's all loving and 
perfect. And it's like, why, why would he do that to us? I wouldn't do it to my kids. Again, it was another very profound thought ex- exercise. The point is that these aspects of religion were designed to instill fear. It's the fear of judgment. I feel like that's the big one. Even with going to hell or being sinful or being born a sinner or doing things wrong or having guilt, it's all the it's a judgment, right? Because when you die, you go to God and he judges you. Right. And that's another thing that they talk about. And I, I can't speak to this very clearly because I don't remember the exact wording they used, but it's this idea that God does not judge. I wish I remembered it because it was also another profound thought, just a counter thought. Let's actually pose all these things as questions. Like, what if God didn't judge? How would you live your life? How would you feel? We are taught by society and groomed, this society specifically, I don't think every society does this, but you know, we are a society that is ingrained with guilt because of the idea of original sin. And the more I think about it, it is completely crazy. And I buy into it, you know? I don't have to. If I never heard that idea, like, I wouldn't know. So what you're saying is that that a lot of us who grew up in a Christian, Western Christianity, grew up with the feeling of guilt, that we're all guilty. And fear. Not, not even Christian, just Western. Anything that is rooted from the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they're all from the same core. You know, what's very interesting about that is it seems very counterintuitive to a lot of us that I've heard about Christianity. It's that God loves you, that he's forgiving. Right. Maybe the reason why we feel guilty or that we're going to be judged or that always someone's watching, right? Santa Claus. Your parents <laughs> say like, oh, Santa's always watching you. You got to be on the good list. If you always live like that, that someone's watching you is going to judge you. And yeah, maybe kids, they at an early age kind of start to question, is this good or bad? Did I do something wrong? And maybe that's where a lot of that kind of judgment and fear comes from. Maybe even from our parents. Like you said, when you're born, we don't really know. We don't know what's right or wrong. It's taught. That's kind of what I'm understanding, right? It's like if you grew up in a way of thinking, you don't have to feel guilty. Yeah, but that isn't what I'm saying. I'm glad you bring this up. I think what I'm realizing now as you're saying this is that like, yes, like it serves a purpose in like setting boundaries, teaching us what's societally right or wrong. Even though some things in society, it's constantly shifting. And so it serves its purpose in like helping you fit into society. But I think what is detrimental is that like we carry this fear and this judgment into adulthood where it's like not serving us. Like we're constantly afraid of like being judged by other people for being successful or being a failure or being somebody or being nobody or being authentic or being not authentic or, you know, just like so many things. And then like when you have kids, it's like, you know, am I a good parent? Am I not a good parent? It's just like enough already. (laughs) Nobody's judging me. Isn't that kind of normal though? In order to be judged, there has to be somebody else, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's say that there was a world where there's only one family. Mm-hmm. It's just you, your partner, and a kid. Yeah. Would that person have lived a different life? Like, wouldn't they still kind of worry about, am I being a good parent? Am I not? Am I supporting for my family? Don't you think that would still be there? I think some of these things will be there. Judgment will always be there. Judgment is natural. 
loving what is talks about this a lot. But what's not natural is letting it put us into a state of fear, whether it's fear of missing out, fear of this and that. And that's what I'm trying to understand. It's just like, how did these enlightened people, they're judged. I'm sure plenty of people judged Thich Nhat Hanh and Dalai Lama over the years. Yeah. Plenty of people judge Jesus Christ. I think it's actually kind of normal. That is normal because that that's a part of life. What I'm trying to get at is internally, me, how do I live in a state of love despite all this judgment or in spite of it? How did Jesus Christ continue to practice love and compassion in spite of all this judgment and fear? I don't know. That's what I think you're trying to answer. But I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer for it right now. Yeah. I don't think there's a clear answer because it's a daily practice. That's what ACIM talks about. That's what I've been experiencing lately, is that it's a constant practice. Every time I get frustrated with my kids, every time I get frustrated or short with myself, every time I get frustrated or short with another driver that cuts me off, it's an opportunity to evaluate and like interrupt myself. And that's what I've been practicing. And again, I, I still don't know how to be in a state of love, but what I've been practicing is like how to, how to not be in a state of fear, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. It's a constant struggle. It sounds like a mix of loving what is, courage to be disliked, and gratefulness practice. Also being like a watcher of your thoughts. Yeah. And if I may add one more, first principles thinking. And that's something I've been drafting, something I've been writing on. It's this idea of first principles thinking versus inquiry. Have you heard of first principles thinking? No, you got to tell us what it is. Okay. First principles thinking is something that like scientists do. It's basically breaking a problem down to its core, not making any assumptions. Elon Musk mentions this, not my favorite guy, but he mentions this a lot. And Naval Ravikant, a bunch of people, they, they actually mention this concept up a lot. But at its core, before Elon Musk and Naval, it's like scientists do this. They break a problem down to just this fundamental core, first principle. First principles thinking consists of deriving things to their fundamental proven axioms in the given arena. Well, that's loaded. Before reasoning up by asking which ones are relevant to the question at hand, then cross-referencing conclusions based on chosen axioms and making sure conclusions do not violate any fundamental laws. Another, actually, there's a better definition of it. In philosophy and science, a first principle is a basic proposition or assumption that cannot be deduced from any other proposition or assumption. Basically, it's like reduced down to its like core concept. And I say this is very similar to inquiry because inquiry is about getting to the core of what is the truth, like what is true, of which many times it's you realize like you cannot know what is true. And that in of itself is, is a mindfuck, right? It's just like, I cannot know that this is true, but that's okay. Because then it breaks a lot of the stories that we're telling. Like, James must be doing this. Like, Mila must be doing this because she's trying to, like, ruin my life. I cannot know that. She's a fucking baby. I can't know that for sure. Maybe she is. Or maybe she's not. Like, who knows? But this idea of first principles thinking and inquiry is a huge part of this. Because when I am faced with that frustration, when I catch myself, it's like, oh, my God, I'm feeling like shit. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling anxious. And I ask, like, what are the fears driving these feelings? That's when I start applying first principles or inquiry, right? And trying to break it down to the core. It's like, what is the root fear here? And then once I usually get to that root fear, I just realize how silly it is. I'm able to like snap out of it. 
versus living in that fear versus not having awareness that I have these fears. And my only awareness is that I'm anxious or I'm depressed or I'm mad. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, it's my way of trying to, lately after reading this book, trying to practice breaking out of that vicious cycle, the mental cycle of like living in a state of unease. If I were to give a concrete example, which I caught myself doing yesterday, you know, there's a ton of shitty drivers in LA. I, I know you, this is actually a topic relevant to you. James hates driving in LA. <laughs> there's a lot of like terrible fucking drivers. And some of them in danger, like reckless driving, crossing five lanes at the last minute. It bothers me. It bothers you. It's just like, this is so frustrating. This is so infuriating. Fucking idiots. Like, why would you do that? Why would you like risk your own life and risk other people's lives? And normally, like, how much do we carry that, that experience that just happened? Like, how does that affect us? I think that affects a lot of people. They just carry it through the rest of their day. And it's like, man, that was, that was fucking infuriating versus like dissolving it. And so what I, what I did, this happened yesterday. What I did was I, I started trying to dissolve it immediately because I, I just knew this is not serving me. It's already happened. I can't do anything about it. I didn't get hurt. Like nothing happened. I didn't get in a car accident or anything, right? And it's not like I'm gonna go chase him down and like give him a piece of my mind, right? So I'm not gonna do anything about it. So there's really no benefit of me holding on to this. Yeah. I think for me, and that happens to me, what I start to think about now is they just must have been in a hurry. They had to get somewhere. They were worried about something and they missed the exit. Yeah. Maybe that's it. And you know, I've done it before. Yeah. <laughs> like, you hold on to it as long as until you're the one that does the same thing. I know. But at that moment, I was just like, what, is, what were my fears? What am I afraid of? I was afraid of dying, being in an accident. I mean, the biggest emotion that I feel while driving in LA is just anger. I'm just more angry at other people because they're not considerate. But I don't know if that's like a fear thing. That's interesting to say that because lately I've been trying to practice this fear analysis thing because it's simple. It's like one thing to focus on. I do find that many things root from fear. And, and that's what's interesting is let's take that example. It's like the car example. Like it is just one fear. Usually like miles in the car with me. So there was a fear of not only like getting an accident, losing my own life or something happened to me, but like there was a fear of something happening to my son. And there was this fear that maybe what if we got into an accident and like only something happened to him? and nothing happened to me. And then I had to live with it. There's a fear of like me having to deal with Mink, my family, with my parents, the grandparents, right? Knowing that like I'd gotten into an accident. Do those all flash through your mind in that split second? I think they do, but it's like all of it just gets overridden by this anger, by frustration. Because I think anger is the reaction to the fears. It's how we respond outwardly. Like anger is an outward expression of an emotion. Okay. Yeah, I agree that it is an outward emotion. I don't know if it's always tied to a fear though. I'm starting to think it is. <laughs> like based on my daily experiences, at least with anger and frustration and annoyance, I'm, I'm starting to think it is. And the reason like before I couldn't dissolve it as well is because I didn't see the underlying fear. And now that I see the underlying fear, I'm just like, well, that didn't happen. I didn't get into an accident. Nothing happened to Miles. All these fears are irrelevant. But I think the reason that we live in anger is because we don't dissolve that. 
we don't realize the underlying fear didn't happen. And then we continue living in that fear. We keep reliving that story. What if it happened? And then we live in the what if. And that's where I would take inquiry to. It's like, is it true that some, an accident happened? No, it's not true. Is it true that like, you know, something happened to Miles? It's not true. Well, okay, that's the end of that. So at the beginning of this episode, you talked about how this Course in Miracles has helped you shift from living in fear to living in love, right? I feel like this first part was all about boiling down to a fear. It seems almost like once you get down to the fear and realize that it's something you don't have to worry about, that is actually the state change into love. Or is there another step there? Right? Eliminating fear is one thing. Is living in love just by identifying what your fear is? Is that all that is? <laughs> Basically, is love just the absence of fear? Yeah. When I brought this up to my buddy Pierre, he was just like, you know, love is not a feeling. What they're talking about, the state of love, it's more than just a feeling. It's a state of being that's to be uncovered or discovered. But in the absence of fear, it frees up a lot of mental space and room to be something else. Maybe it's to go gravitate towards another fear, but like at least it frees it up for you to just not be in that space anymore. Let me give one more concrete example. Last night, my wife was working and it's nothing new. You know, I take care of both kids. And sometimes they're always wonderful, but sometimes they're like just very challenging. They like don't want to do what they should be doing, in my opinion. Like last night, like Mila needs to eat, right? She eats every four to six hours. And we ran out of breast milk. And so I had to make her formula. And she like fucking hates this formula. <laughs> like mm -hmm. she's almost seven months old, but she knows exactly what she wants and doesn't want, which is great from a developmental standpoint. But as an adult, as a caretaker, it's frustrating because you're like, this is all I got. <laughs> you know, like, and you got to eat. I like started getting really frustrated. And I had to catch myself like, dude, why am I getting so upset? Why am I getting so angry? She doesn't want to eat. She doesn't want to eat. There could be a million reasons she doesn't want to eat. Like she hates the formula. She hates the taste of it. I'm not eating. I haven't tasted it yet. You know, I don't know the taste profile, you know, but she knows if it's formula versus breast milk, you know, and she like just fucking abhors it until she gets hungry enough where she will actually eat it. I was very sleep deprived. These are some of the things that affect our ability to catch ourselves or to, you know, snap ourselves out of it. And I realized I was getting upset because the underlying fear, the, the fear that could snap me out of it, I wasn't even afraid that she was going to starve to death. No. So I was like, what is the fear that's driving me mad? It's a fear that I would be judged for not being a good caretaker last night. Then Mink might come home, and I'm extrapolating this, but this is ultimately what it was about. It was like, Mink would come home and be like, oh my God, like you couldn't take care of her? You have one job. You can like feed her, like you can get her to eat. She might tell her parents. And then there's like three people like beating down on me. It's like, oh fuck. It was a fear of that. But it was all self-created. Like I didn't even have awareness that I had this fear that I like created. And Mink's never done that to me. And maybe because she's never judged me like that. I'm afraid to be judged like that. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't want to eat, you don't have anything else for them. What else can you do though? Can't explain to them that this is all that there is. If you weren't living in a state of fear, then you would be practicing compassion, like Mink does. She does the same things with Mink, but I don't see her getting all worked up and pissed off. Like she like is milk resistant sometimes when Mink's trying to feed her, or just like crying incessantly, and just like I never see Mink like losing her shit. Part of it's like 
I don't think she fabricated that story or that fear. So without that fear, then I was able to practice compassion. I put myself in a different state of mind. I was like, oh, maybe she's just not hungry yet. Maybe she is still a little bit sleepy. She's a little cranky. Or maybe she's uncomfortable, right? Maybe I didn't change her diaper yet, so I checked her diaper. When I erased that fear, I started problem solving. <laughs> I started like trying to like not blame her. I hope for our listeners, that's an example of like the insanity that we can put ourselves through on a day-to-day basis, right? On an hour-to-hour basis. This example is, it should be so evident. It's a fucking helpless baby. But what other areas in our lives is this happening where it's not as evident, where like we're not pushing ourselves or forcing ourselves to question it? By evident, I mean, that was an example where I know deep down inside, there's something fundamentally wrong about how I was feeling. The anger is misplaced. There are many more situations you don't realize that like whatever anger or frustration that we're feeling is also just as easily misplaced. But there's no like innocent child to like snap you out of it or to push you to like question yourself or like catch yourself. My feelings of not doing enough, like I could be contributing more to society or to whatnots. Maybe I could be an investor and help other companies. It's like that is not as evident. But taking the same practice, I snap myself out of it really quickly. A lot of these thoughts that we have, they're either future states or they're past states. Being able to dissolve a lot of these things quicker throughout my day has allowed me to just be more present. Because what I know used to happen to me before was that all these things would just clog my my headspace. Right. So that if I'm like out hanging out with Miles, like I'm not present. Like I'm still thinking about that guy who cut me off. And now it's just like, okay, fuck all that noise. And when I am present with them, new struggles will crop up with him specifically. But again, I catch myself like for a while, like I've always worried that like he's not developing his motor functions as quickly as some of the other kids. Like he didn't know how to steer on a, like his tricycle or in his like push cart. I was like, oh man, what's, what's wrong with him? Like, why can't he steer? Like trying to teach him. I would have to catch myself out of those fears. Like, what are the fears underlying to that? And it's like, okay, like to see him as he is, right? Versus like seeing him for my fears. And then all of a sudden, blink of an eye, as expected, he knew how to turn. And then all of a sudden, like another fear would crop up. Like, okay, now he doesn't know how to stop. <laughs> <laughs> now he's going to like run himself into the street. And then I'd catch myself and like self-correct again. It's so funny how like, so many fears come up as you're, you know, living your day. But if you don't catch yourself, you just end up not only living in that state of fear, but it's infectious. You end up like spreading it. I end up getting mad at Miles. Like, why don't you know how to stop? Why don't you have a sense of danger? You know, it, you can quickly devolve into that kind of thinking. Well, you know, the, the concept of Simon Sinek says this story about the skier who is skiing down a path. Yeah. He says, like, if you're thinking in your head, trees, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree, <laughs> you will fucking hit a tree. Yeah. But if you think in your head, what's the path, you'll find the path. And so if, with fear, I don't think this is what you're doing. I feel like what's happening is when you feel something is out of your control or you're feeling an emotion that is driving you to a negative place, you start to question what is it that is making me react this way? So then it becomes, what am I afraid of right now? Or what is the fear that is causing me to act in this manner? I think it's 
even simpler than that. It's actually perfectly aligned with the example you brought up about skiing. It's not putting focus on the fear. It is recognizing that you're thinking about the tree. It's like we go through life constantly like tree, 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 tree. It's recognizing like, stop worrying about the tree. You see what I'm saying? Just ski. That is exactly it. Catching yourself, being aware. When I catch myself, I'm like, hey, stop worrying about that fear. Stop thinking about that tree. Stop thinking about that tree. Stop thinking about that tree. And then just like, I come back. Cool. Nice. Beware of your fears. I like that a lot, actually. That's actually like a good motto to live by. I just don't like saying like, be aware of the fear. It's That just makes it seem like you're looking out for fears. I get what you're saying. I think long-term, that would be like a bad mindset. I think short-term, it's more of like a intervention. We need to intervent how we're wired. You know, We have to recognize all this guilt and fear that we've like accumulated. And it's like, how do we shed these layers of fear and guilt that are not serving us? And I think this gets to the core of what you were getting at as, as children. We are taught and instilled certain fears to protect us. And I think there is a core set of fears that are serving us, right? <laughs> like danger, you know, <laughs> like, but over the years, as we grow, as we experience things, like, you know, as we have good relationships, bad relationships, good experiences, bad experiences, we like add on layers and layers of fear. And I think at a certain point, we're just like suffocating under like, all these fears that actually don't serve us. And all I'm talking about is like, how do I strip away those layers of fears that are not serving me? Fears of judgment from my spouse, fear of judgment from other parents, fear of, you know, like it's not serving me. Like I raise my kid how I want to raise my kid. Sure, I will take other people's judgment as advice, as a data point, but I shouldn't take it as like a fear. Like I, I want to raise my kid because I'm afraid of how you guys are going to think of me. It's like, no. That's not how to raise a kid. I should, you know, carve my career path based on how other people, you know, based out of fear that like other people are going to judge me that I didn't choose the correct path for my skill sets. That's nonsense. I should be choosing my path based on what I want to do, what I can do right now, not based on fears of how people, other people think of me. Those are the fears that I live with constantly. And I just need to strip them down layer by layer. And so I get to like the core fears that actually do serve me and protect me. Like see lion, run, see someone swerving at me, turn. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for listening. See you guys next week.